Well, good evening, everybody. It is time for Crosstown Conversations, and this is your host, Jean Nathan. And um, we're going to start out the uh, program this evening with some pretty serious talk with um, some um, very knowledgeable and high-level folks who are going to talk about what's going on on the Mississippi River. And I, I think we all want to know what that's all about because, of course, the Mississippi River runs right through the city of New Orleans. Um, and there's all kinds of uh, things happening uh, upriver, and um, we're going to be talking about that. We're going to start off talking with John Barry. Is he on? Hello, John. Hello, Gene. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm kind of, you know, biting my nails a little bit, but I don't bite my nails, actually, but that was metaphorical. <laughs> but um, uh, with what's going on upriver, um, you know, it's being described, uh, uh, the levees as Swiss cheese, that there's just breaches everywhere, um, literally hundreds of them, and uh, a lot of people kind of for the first time saying, I just don't know if I can come back. Well, others, of course, always want to come back. But I, I kind of want to start with you because I'm going to have, um, uh, you know, uh, Mike Clancy, who is the colonel uh, who's running the Army Corps here in the city uh, and in Louisiana up next. And then after him, uh, I did reach uh, um, General Galloway. And so he's going to come on, and we're going to sort of go to the wider, bigger, longer-term uh, uh, picture with him. But I want to go back to 1927, because everybody does. We always talk about 1927. Every time we talk about floods, we go back to that event, which was maybe <clears throat> kind of one of the maximum, optimum uh, river flooding events ever, for the Mississippi at any rate. And you wrote a really astounding book about it that – uh, is pretty much the Bible on um, how governments in a region and people uh, deal with a flood and, and what a flood uh, can do. And, of course, it was um, changed things, and I, that's what I want to talk about. So um, what happened? What, what basically was the nature of that event? And uh, then I want to go to kind of what changed as a result of it. Well, first, you know, most floods are – interplays between natural and human-caused disasters. Obviously, if there is uh, no kind of if a tree falls in the forest, you know, does anybody hear it? Uh, if there's not a lot of development, uh, even if the river gets high, uh, there are no levees to breach, you know, it's going to flood, but nothing gets damaged, and it's a natural situation you know, the river made the land down here by flooding and depositing sediment uh, across its entire natural floodplain, you know, in total probably about 40,000 square miles in seven states. Uh, in 1927, the Corps of Engineers was following a particular engineering theory, uh, the levees only approach, which was exactly what it sounded like. They only had levees to contain the river. Uh, and they weren't nearly as high or as wide as the levees are now. And there were well over a 100 breaches on the main stem of the Mississippi River along with all the tributaries. There were floods on the Ohio, you know, Cincinnati, Louisville, uh, and, and so on. There were floods on the Cumberland and the Tennessee Rivers and, and Nashville and Knoxville. There were people killed as far west 
as Oklahoma City uh, in the Missouri Basin. Uh, And it was really a worst-case scenario. Uh, It made pretty close to 1% of the entire population of the country homeless uh, because massive political changes sent hundreds of thousands of African-Americans moving from the South to the North elected Herbert Hoover president, and along the way it also changed the way the Corps of Engineers approached rivers. You know, we now have uh, reservoirs on the Missouri River system and on the Arkansas, on the Ohio, to keep water from getting into the Mississippi. We obviously have the spillway, which is still open, uh, right above the city. Uh, we have, to our west, the Morganza a spillway, which very unlikely it'll be used this year. Uh, then we have the West uh, floodway on the other side of the Chafalaya River. Uh, so all these engineering changes went in uh, as as a result of that. The federal government took control of the levee system uh, at the request of all the states that had suffered uh, so much, and and you know. It, it had mass. I mean, the uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Arkansas were pretty much totally devastated uh, economically. And it's a summary, I guess, of what what happened. So, um, obviously, when you something is as devastating as that, uh, there's a lot of players who uh, come to the table to, uh, as the crisis is approaching, try to um, avoid it, to mitigate it, and then um, uh, after the fact, try to figure out, okay, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? What do we have to do? So um, a lot of your book deals with the politics of how difficult it was for all the different communities on the river to uh, kind of navigate not the river so much as the the politics surrounding it. Uh, can you kind of give me a? Um... Yeah, sure. Well, as there's a saying that all water is local. You, you may, I'm sure you're familiar with the saying, all politics is local. When I started researching the book, a uh, guy working for the Corps said, "You think all politics is local? All water is really local." Huh. Uh, you know, there. If obviously, if the levee breaks on one side of the river, the people on the other side of the river are are going to be dry. There were gun battles with people killed up and down the river. There were two people killed below New Orleans when they seemed to threaten the levee in St. Bernard. There were people killed in Arkansas. Uh, there was, you know, a gun bat pitch battle where uh, some saboteurs were found with 105 sticks of dynamite, things like that. Uh, and the irony is in St. Bernard, where two people were shot when they approached too close to the levee, uh, not too long after that, the uh, city of New Orleans got the state government to dynamite the levee with the permission of the federal government uh, to relieve pressure on the city. That was a purely political statement. Uh uh, the science they, didn't really back that as a solution. Not, did it? No, because uh, it was crystal clear that levees, <laughs> excuse me, upriver from New Orleans were going to break and that the flood crest would never make it down here. And in fact, 24 hours after, after they dynamited the levee down in St. Bernard, 
which was in April 1927. You know, some levees way upriver uh, did in fact break, and uh, the flood crest never did even approach New Orleans. But now we have to live all these years with that mythical issue of uh, blowing up levees, and every time we have uh, a little too much water coming over a levee uh, or a threat of it, um, you hear people talk about, you know, oh, somebody you know has gone and exploded the levee again, which is um, just kind of how strong mythology can be as opposed to again science and reality. Right. Well, in Katrina, there was uh, there there are people who believe the industrial canal flood wall was was sabotage but that uh, that's not what happened i mean there no doubt was noise but when you have that huge wall being pushed over by the water and it hits the ground that's a pretty resounding explosive like noise and, that, and uh, actually i'm glad you mentioned that because that opens up the other subject that i wanted to touch on with you i don't have a lot of time for it today because i have all these other um, uh, got some pretty good guests, <laughs> River folks. Yeah, coming on. But but John, um, I was uh, really kind of cheered, literally cheered verbally when I read the newspaper that uh, Latoya Cantrell, Mayor Cantrell, had joined with other parish leaders um, to uh, to go after once again to bring suit against the energy companies for not cleaning up their mess with the channels that are allowing saltwater intrusion into our marshes, which is contributing to coastal erosion. And coastal erosion um, contributes to a bigger and higher and faster wall of water coming at us, right? Uh, exactly. Uh, as you certainly know, and Perhaps many of your listeners know I was pretty much the architect of a uh, the lawsuit filed by the Levy Board, the Southeast Louisiana Flood Protection Authority East, uh, just about five years ago, uh, which our case was dismissed. The court said we didn't have standing to file. But after we filed, then six parishes have filed, and now finally, finally New Orleans uh, it's funny that all these conservative parishes, you know, Jefferson, St. Bernard, and Plaquemine around us filed, but uh, New Orleans, uh, a more liberal parish, uh, certainly democratic and uh, more environmentally friendly, did not file. I never did know why Mitch wouldn't do that. He, he made speeches that I could have written, but he never pulled the trigger. Now, uh, Latoya Cantrell has done that. I, I think it's very important for the future of New Orleans. But just uh, hold on. Uh, I'm sorry, John. Yeah, uh, call in about five minutes. Thank you. Um, uh, I'm sorry. I'm not very good at handling the technical side sometimes. Yeah, exactly. But um, now, uh, what, 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 what do you give the chances that these folks are going to be successful? Well, there's no question they have standing. Uh, and there's no question that the oil companies did damage. Uh, and they had agreements where they were supposed to clean up, right? That was part of their getting the right to use the land. In most cases, you know, every permit is a little bit different. Uh, but anything done since 1980, uh, the law requires them to, quote, restore to the pre-existing condition. And many of the uh, permits prior to that, 
have language in them that would serve the same purpose. Well, I'm hopefully ho- hoping that this is going to be um, the time that we actually change things. Uh, I'm encouraged by what happened in East Baton Rouge. I guess you know about the community there saying no to tax incentives for uh, the energy company involved up there and said, give us some money for our schools. Uh, we saw what happened in Queens with Amazon. Maybe there's uh, um, more of an awareness on the part of citizens that they have a voice and they can – uh, compete with these big corporate interests and and do what's right for the community. So we'll see what happens. Of course, we just lost one of them in St. John Parish, but um, maybe that's not over, right? Uh, correct. John, thank you so much, and um, I'm really looking forward to continuing that conversation. So uh, keep me informed on how that goes forward, and, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll want to do anything I can to uh, support that effort to um, uh, make f- uh, folks um, – uh, accountable for what they're supposed to take care of. Well, I'm just watching this one, although if I'm asked to help, and I hope I am, I will certainly do so. Well, watching helps. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Um, sure. Um, I appreciate your call in. So I, 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 I assume that we're about to get uh, my next caller. He should be uh, coming on. And if not, we're going to give him a call. So uh, I'm looking forward now to talking to Mike Clancy, who is the colonel for the U.S. Army Corps here in Louisiana. And um, he's been a very conscientious um, watchdog on what's going on on the river in our area and, of course, keeping his eye on what's going on in the upper river. And so we're going to talk to him a little bit about both get a little bit of a sense from him about what's happening up there and to what extent uh, we're going to be dealing with a similar issue here. I'm just watching here. this one, although so, if I'm asked that, to help, and I hope I am, I will certainly do so. Uh, so I think we're getting a playback. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm, sure. I appreciate your calling. Oh, okay. So I, I, I assume that we're about to get uh, my next caller. Uh, for some reason, I think that uh, we're getting a little bit of playback on the previous interview. I'm not sure why. All right. Is that Mike now? <laughs> That's the problem with Collins. Mike? Stand by, everybody. We're, we're trying to get our phones clear and get, get the right guy on the phone. Sometimes it's uh, smooth and sometimes it gets a little rocky. Clancy? Mike Clancy? Hello? Gene, how are you? It's Colonel Clancy. All right. Okay. We had just a little rough spot there. Um, okay. So this is Colonel uh, Michael Clancy. He is the head of the uh, Army Corps of Engineers for Louisiana. Is it just Louisiana? So I am the commander of New Orleans District, which is the southern two-thirds, everything from the Red River south in Louisiana. So about All two-thirds right. of Louisiana. Because I knew it was more than just New Orleans. Um, okay. So I, I guess uh, I want to start with just – um, the obvious uh, thing, because where the really the breaches are happening like crazy, um, uh, 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 John Barry just said they had 100 breaches in 1927. Uh, in the recent reports, there's already 62 breaches um, up uh, in the Midwest, uh, maybe hundreds of miles of levees that have sustained damage. So it kind of makes you a little bit uh, nervous and, and having to kind of watch what's going on. Um, give me a little feeling for what's going on up there, and then let's talk about um, our region. 
Absolutely, Gene. So we are in the midst of one of the wettest years in the last 100 to 150 years across the United States. All that water has to go somewhere, and the Mississippi River drains over 40% of the United States. So all that water, if you've seen the flooding in the upper Midwest and the Great Plains, that's all on its way here. Uh, That's the bad news. The good news is we've been through this before. Obviously, you just had John Barry talking about the 27 floods. Since 1927, as he said, all the levees from Cairo, Illinois, which is where the Mississippi and Ohio River meet south, have been federalized through the Mississippi River and Tributaries Project. So since 27, uh, Congress has appropriated nearly $15 million to improve and upgrade the levees. So our levees here are in the best shape they have ever been in. Uh, we've been in flood fight here in New Orleans, uh, meaning the Batcher's been flooded since around the 2nd or 3rd of November. Uh, so we've been at this for months. It's been a historically high river. Um, there are certainly areas of concern. We are inspecting the levee every day, but the levees are in good shape, and uh, those levees, most of the problems they had uh, up north that everybody saw in the Missouri just weren't federal levees, more smaller local agricultural-type levees, not the big Mississippi River levees we have down here. So um, what, what are the kinds of things that you do uh, as you watch that water come our way to make sure that we are – uh, safe. I mean, uh, I, I, you had mentioned in a, uh, a discussion we had offline that essentially there are over 200, quote, hot spots. And so um, you, uh, uh, presumably you keep a real sharp eye on those hot spots. And um, what, what does that mean, first of all? What is a hot spot? So we have in my jurisdiction from the confluence of the Red and the Mississippi River south, we've got about a 1,000 miles of levee on the Mississippi and the Atchafalaya River. So we are now inspecting every one of those, every mile, every day gets a core inspector on them. Uh, we're working in full partnership with the local levee districts who, who take care of the levees and own the levees um, to just look and it's a uh, proactive posture trying to see as the the river, these high water levels can damage the levee. We want to catch those things as early as possible. So every day we find new hot spots and we try to address them sort of like whack-a-mole. So there's about 250 hot spots uh, we are watching between the two rivers, Mississippi and Chappaya. And those can be uh, anything from sand boils. We've got a sand boil in Point Coupee, which is our, our only high priority where we just take extra close eye. We we're fighting that one with the sandbag ring. Uh, erosion. The concrete armoring on the front of the levee, places where that's cracked and broken, can cause extra erosion. Uh, barges can nuzzle up to the levee as they're waiting to do what uh, they're going up and down the river. They can cause damage to the levee. Animals can cause damage to the levee. So it's really a daily fight where we inspect the levee and try to address problems as early as possible to prevent them from becoming problems. That's, you know, that's I, the levees, and then we've got the spillways. Uh, obviously, I think everyone knows we opened the Bonacari spillway on the 27th of February. Uh, that is our main tool to control the flood stage here in New Orleans, in the greater New Orleans area. Uh, we will operate that to maintain the river no higher than uh, 17 feet here in New Orleans. We came close to operating the Morganza floodway, same exact idea as Bonacari, just uh, which is uh, to defend and reduce flood risk in Baton Rouge. We tickled those triggers about three weeks ago. We didn't have to operate Morganza. 
Uh, so those are the two big flood, uh, the, the, the spillways and the levees are the two big tools we have to pass this massive amount of water that is currently going by us. So um, I have to ask this question, and, and we sort of you, you mentioned it, but um, just so that uh, the public understands, because I, I don't, what is a sand boil? So a sand boil, if you can picture on one side of the levee is the river, uh, can be 10 to 20 feet higher than the land on the other side. Um, that amount of pressure creates channels where the water goes under the levee and then comes up on the other side. So there's the, our number one uh, hot spot is a seepage point. Most people have seen levees seeping where a little trickle of water leaks through. Maybe the roads on the, and the river road or whatnot is wet. A sand boil is a little bit more extreme where the, the soil actually looks like it's boiling. It's like a uh, quicksand pit. That there's actual active movement of the soil as the water comes. So we've got uh, probably two or three sand boils in Louisiana right now. We're watching closely if those uh, those can become problems quickly if we don't try to stabilize those boils and increase the water pressure on the dry side of the levees, how we fight those. So... Um, uh... I would think that when an average citizen comes upon uh, something that looks a little scary, like the river being very high, just alone is scary enough. I mean, I've, you said since November, and I have to say I didn't—I don't think I noticed it in November, but I did think uh, that the river was higher, much higher than normal earlier, and that made me kind of nervous. And then, of course, watching all those storms in the Midwest, it was pretty obvious that we were going to get something like what we're getting, but um, maybe we didn't think it would be quite as bad as it is. But what can the average citizen do uh, to kind of stay on top of things and uh, do you welcome anybody to call and tell you they've seen a sand boil or something that uh, looks scary or would that just overwhelm your phone lines? No, absolutely. We're looking for anybody call in, call the Corps of Engineers, go to our website or call the local levy district. Um, if you see something like seepage or you know, just anything that doesn't look right, crack levy or uh, erosion point, anything like that, call, let us know. We, as I said, we're inspecting levees every day. We've probably seen it, but maybe we haven't. So that's the one thing uh, anyone in the public can do. And then anyone who has uh, property, we stop all construction activities that involve digging within 1,500 feet of the levee. We stop that during flood stages of the river. So we've paused all permits since November. Uh, that is... Um, Appreciate the, the impact that has. It's holding up projects all, all over the state, but that is, uh, if you dig in near the levee, that can instantly create a avenue for the water to come through from the other side and can quickly spiral out of control into big problems. So that's why we do that. So uh, everyone who has one of those pause projects is also contributing to public safety by doing that. So what's the phone number that folks can call and what's your website? I'll get you the phone number. The website is www.mvn. That's Mike November. No, sorry, Mike Victor November. USACE, as in United States Army Corps of Engineers. Army. Mill. That's the district page, and you can see the buttons on there. And before we're done, I'll get you the, the number to call us. Okay. So finally. Um uh, I, I just want to have a sense of 
the timing. Uh, when do you think we'll be sort of at a peak level of uh, keeping our eyes peeled, let's say, keep our eagle eyes on the levy, and when uh, will things probably calm down? So the current crest has passed. We were, we were tickling Morganza about three weeks ago. Uh, we've been dropping for about three weeks. That flooding up in the Missouri is on its way here. That won't be here for about another two weeks. It takes that much longer to get here. Uh, the, you know, obviously, the bad news is the upper Midwest had some severe flooding. The good news for us down here is that is uh, not is going to uh, really just maintain our crest. It's not really going to raise the river much because that new water will balance with the falling water we presently have. Uh, so I don't see getting back into critical stages with our current forecast, but Mother Nature has a role. So we get heavy rains in the next couple of weeks, we could be back up into critical stages but really, there's no end in sight. I think we'll be in flood stages here in New Orleans for at least uh, another week. Yeah, sorry, another month to six weeks at the very least. Um, you have a public hearing coming up when people can come and, and interact with you all. Tell me about that. Sure, you're right. So um, in 1879, to consider what to do about the river, the, the Mississippi River Commission was established. That is a commission of uh, seven presidential appointees who uh, conduct trips up and down the river every year to assess the state of the river for all its uses, navigation, recreation, and flood protection, um, and they hold public meetings. So we have the Mississippi River Commission. We're going to have a public meeting in Baton Rouge. It's at the city dock in Baton Rouge next Friday at uh, 9 a.m. It's going to be on the motor vessel Mississippi, which is a massive Corps of Engineers towboat. Uh, so everyone's welcome to come. You can come and just sit and listen, uh, as well as everyone has uh, offered the opportunity to provide testimony to the Mississippi River Commission to express uh, either their concerns or desires for what the federal role and the federal plan for the Mississippi River should be. Well, um, Mike, uh, I, I think that's terrific that you all do that, and I encourage people to uh, to come out for it. At the very least, check in on your website, and let me make sure that I got that website right. Um, so I tried to write it down. Uh, let's see. What, what did I do with it? Um, it is... Uh, Maybe you better give it to me again because sure. oh, it's, it's a W M V N as in Mississippi Valley, New Orleans. M V N dot U S A C E as in United States Army Corps of Engineers. Okay, I think with that much people can probably dot find Army it. Google dot is so and brilliant at finding find things. It. And our hotline is five zero four eight six two. One one zero two. Stay in touch. Let me know what's going on. Um, if if it would help, uh, give us a call, and we'll put you on again as things go forward. And Absolutely. thank you for what you do. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the time. Good All evening. right. Okay, we're going to take just a little quick break while we get uh, General Galloway, who is an international expert in what's happening with rivers around the world, not just in the Mississippi Valley, but elsewhere. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
Continue now with a man who my husband calls utterly brilliant, uh, one of the international experts in uh, river systems, uh, both here in the Mississippi, where he was the head of the commission that runs the whole darn river, and um, and now he's a professor at the University of Maryland. Did I do you justice? Uh, he did more because I was just a member of the commission for seven years, uh, a great privilege and a great organization. Thank you. So, um, General Galloway, um, what, what, how, how, from, from your perspective, like, you know, pulling out just a little bit further, um, on the timeline, um, you know, when we talked with Colonel Clancy, we were really talking about the here and now, what, what's going on upriver, what's going, what's coming our way, and how are we going to deal with it, uh, in, in the short term. Let's look at the whole long term picture. So, one of the things that we're all talking about much more now, and, and I think more rationally than maybe we were a few years ago, uh, about climate change and the interaction between climate change, um, weather events, more water, more rain, uh, more um, threatening situations. Um, is that your perspective? And, and share with me what what the what the implication of that is for us long term. Well, it, it's very clear. Uh, I, I've now been watching this for, I guess, uh, since before Katrina, obviously. Uh, into the last century, and we've been saying it's coming, it's coming, and we've now had several scientific bodies. The best scientists we have in this country say climate change is real, and it's happening right now around us. We can't tell you exactly where it's going to happen, but we know that in the Northeast and the Upper Midwest, which is where some of the water that you have right now is coming from, it's increasing every year. And we're having uh, something around the country called these cloud bursts that really cause devastating floods. Because instead of coming uh, over a period of time where it's sort of gentle rain, you have the Harvey-like event where you have 54 inches of rain in a very short period of time. And there's no system right now that can overcome that if, that, if that's all coming down into an area that's not prepared for it. Uh, so... We do have climate change taking place. We're having development take place where more and more water is coming off the land and into the water and into downstream. Uh, it all flows downstream. There was a wonderful poster uh, many, many years ago that said that all water flows downhill and goes to the bottom and then rises back up, and that's Louisiana. And it wow. was done by the state of Louisiana because you all are suffering as a result of everything that's taken place in nature and in uh, society above you. Uh, well, it's a challenge. Uh, this cloudburst that you just described, um, what causes that? How does that work? Well, we don't know the, the answer to that. We know that the change that's occurred 
in the last 20 years has seen an increase in this. Some of it is the uh, moisture stream that comes from the Pacific, and it comes to uh, this part of the country, and we end up with these cloudbursts. But, again, it's the, the total dynamics of climate change. Uh, we can't tell you why it's happening, but it is. Uh, we have a little. We have a town north of uh, Washington here, where we've had two thousand-year storms in two years. Imagine that, and, and it's wiped out the communities. Uh, it's it, the river doesn't rise. All the tributaries run down into the uh, canyons and, and bayous that they have and flood the area. Uh, it's it's not the same thing as you have on a large riverine system, but it is happening all over the country, and of course the, the cloudburst of sorts in Harvey is an example of what we never expected. So are, are we actually prepared for dealing with this? I know for some time there was a lot of resistance to acknowledging um, that climate change was really happening. I think that phase is pretty much over. There may be some folks out there, uh, unfortunately, at a high level of policy making that are clinging to a fiction of uh, the past that maybe, you know, it's not happening, or at least they're debating the causes. But um, uh, are, are we are, are we in a position to handle this extra water on the river? And I know that there's kind of a debate about what is the most important priority for uh, uh, controlling the river. So is it about flood control or is it other issues? So some people are saying, we're not paying enough attention or we're not prioritizing flood control. Well, that's a, you see a lot of that in the newspaper. The, the bottom line is this. In 1927, uh, when we took on the Mississippi after the, the big flood that John Barry was talking about, we ended up with a, a program where the federal government south of Cairo, Illinois, uh, came up with the idea of doing this type of work and the upper areas were done in instead of in one lump area, uh, as it was in the south, the lower Mississippi, it was done in piecemeal. For a while, it was there to do navigation. For a while, it was there to do, well, it was built-in navigation, built-in flood control, built-in environmental, uh, built-in power. All of these things are competing uses of the river, and the Congress dictates what they are, what their their opportunities are to be used, and then they are sorted out every year by the people that are working with the Corps on what should be the distribution. Uh, do you take care of the environment? Do you ensure that uh, we, in fact, can produce power that we need to run the engines of the Midwest? Uh, and that's been very controversial. The states don't agree on it. They've sued each other. They've sued the, the federal government. And the judges have said, look, until the, the Congress and the states work this out, we can't do it. It's a very difficult job. Uh, they had a study underway in 2009 to determine, figure out what would be the optimum. And uh, halfway through it, they shut it down because people were so annoyed that it was going on. They didn't want their particular use to be lost. Uh, so it is difficult. Uh, there's a real difference between the upper and the lower Mississippi. When you started with the lower Mississippi in 1927, it was a consolidated plan with people working together and a structure of uh, levees, dams, uh, revetment along the side of the river, all of these sorts of tools that are put to use, channel work, that makes it very, very uh 
strong in the face of a major flood. Uh, people talk about the Dutch having a wonderful system, and they do, but there is nothing as big and as, as strong as the lower Mississippi system. And it performed extremely well in 27, or 2011 when it really turned out to have a major flood close to the 1927 flood. In the upper Mississippi and Missouri that we've been talking about, where all the levees are broken, there aren't uh, many levees broken and, and in bad shape south of Cairo, Illinois. They're all north of the uh, Cairo uh, junction of the Mississippi and north on the Missouri River in the upper Mississippi, where they're much smaller and they're not run by a commission and run by very strong levy boards at the federal, state, and local level. Uh, it is a, it is a challenge. And there's a lot of territory and it's flat. It's not the low-lying land you have uh, in lower Louisiana and in uh, Mississippi and in parts of uh, Texas. It is uh, wide open farm fields with narrow valleys where the water runs through these uh, valleys and can rise up and flood out much more than it does uh, in the lower valley, oh, except yeah. in the uh, floodplains. Uh-huh, so yeah. they're not as well prepared. And in 1993, when we had the big Mississippi flood, uh, we reported to the president that you needed to have a Mississippi commission for the upper Mississippi, Missouri. And that was turned down in Washington as not being necessary. Well, we've seen it in 19... Uh, 93, 2008, uh, 2011, and 2019, that that's not the case. And you, you know, feel sorry thing... for people who are going through the same kind of flooding yep. four or five years in a row, uh, four or five years in the series of floods that occur on these rivers. You know, something that um, I've, I've learned in my uh, short life of doing work with communities and being involved in urban planning. I'm not an urban planner, but I often handle a lot of outreach. Um, The people who were directly affected by um, any kind of uh, environmental circumstance, they they know a lot about what's going on. And and sometimes those guys up there in in Washington, D.C., think they know more than people do at the local level. As John uh, pointed out, you know, all um, politics is local and so is water. And people really have a better idea of what's going on sometimes than policymakers. But I've got two last questions for you. I'm going to run out of time, and I have another guest that I want to get to. But I have um, two questions. One, uh, is it migration time or some kind of partial migration uh, to, to get people uh, maybe a little further away from the river. And secondly, how does the Mississippi compare with the rivers around the world? Are we one of the most dangerous? Do we have the most flooding? Or are, are there a lot of other rivers around the world that are having the same problem? Uh, no. Uh, well, uh, I think that we've got some interesting challenges ahead, and we have to deal with them. Uh, we We can consider... From our standpoint, there are be places where uh, the sea level rise is a big challenge, and you've already seen that in coastal Louisiana. And uh, so we do have to worry about it. We can't always continue to raise levees. But are we the most dangerous? Not the way we're protected right now. In the lower Mississippi, uh, you have a protection system that's the equal of any around the world. And uh, it's a very big river. I've spent a lot of time in China, and uh, they are envious of what we've been able to do. They started it off. They came up with the ideas, and they've come up with some wonderful things for their systems. 
but uh, the Yangtze and the Yellow River uh, face many, many challenges. They have 93 flood detention areas that they fill with water during extreme periods because they just don't have enough room in the river to carry that water. Uh, we've worked that around with the backwater storage and some other ideas that make it a lot easier on us. So we face real problems, very big problems, but we're well prepared to do it, uh, certainly in the lower Mississippi, but considerably less prepared in the upper Mississippi. But do some folks on the upper Mississippi need to move back away from the river or at least move their homes and barns, as you suggested when we were talking earlier? Uh, yeah, there, there is certainly the case where there are things you can do. You can do a lot to protect the property you have, uh, raise the essential facilities, get the electrical uh, systems out of the way, uh, move things, uh, your your uh, homes and other places a little bit farther away so that not every year are they flooded. On the other hand, uh, you cannot count on having the levees do the job all by itself. And that's why you need this balance between the two. And the other challenge that we've seen in the upper Mississippi and the Missouri is things are getting worse in many cases. And can can we continue to live with this worse, or will we have to, uh, just by virtue of no other alternative, uh, move some places uh, out of the area that's the most hazardous? I so appreciate you checking in with us. Folks, we've been hearing from one of the um, international experts on rivers, and we're going to um, check back in with you, General. Now that I've got your phone numbers, I'm sorry. I'm going to use them, and I want you to think about me sometimes as things develop and, and give me a call if you can um, share some knowledge with us and uh, forewarn us of, of what we need to be thinking about. Thank you so much for calling in. No, no problem at all. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Well, we've been talking about some very, very serious matters. And um, not that what we're about to talk about isn't a serious matter, too. But I, I will say that uh, because the title of a of, of, of film that um, Judy Hill is featured in is called What You Gonna Do When the World's on Fire. So we've been talking about, um, we've been talking about water, but we got some fire to talk about. And, um, uh, it's, it's, it's not so much, you know, literally fire, but it's in a sense when things are changing dramatically. So, uh, Judy Hill, uh, is one of the lead actors in a film coming up called What You Gonna Do When the World's on Fire, which had its world premiere at the Venice International Film Festival. And, uh, she is the daughter of the late R&B icon, Jesse Hill. Big name, big guy, who named her bar after her father's 1960 hit, Oop Where did Oop come from? Where did that expression come from? Not too sure. It was before my time. But the story I hear that um, they were hanging out somewhere and Jesse always making up different sounds or whatever. And, and and I guess that sound popped Just off. rolled out of his mouth. Uh, yes. Ooh, poop, From what I hear. Yeah. Well, it certainly has its place in history. Yeah. As do you. You have a place in history because you decided to keep his legend alive through a club that became, uh, a, I would have to say, one of the landmarks of the city. Yes. And uh, it, it's, it's, it was famous in its time. 
uh, and it continues to have a legacy. Tell me about what you were trying to do with that and, and tell me about the difficulties that you had in keeping it sustained. Well, first of all, I wanted to get the board to keep my dad's legacy going and the family's name. We always would sit at my mom's house and come up with stories like, you know, fantasize of having a bar or a restaurant or whatever. But um, I got the opportunity to get the bar. And, um, and, and, well. You went for it. I went for it, yes. And I was it. there some of the early times when you, uh, pretty soon after you first opened. Really? And, oh, yeah. And the spirit, oh, wow. well, I mean, I live in Treme, okay? I live okay. right um Near the, you know, where the Musée de Free People of Color, I'm, I'm right yeah. there. Ooh. And, uh, so I'm not that far away. And okay. I, I travel a lot down, going down to St. Bernard for projects that I do there. And so I pass the club all the time. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. So you came in. I hope you enjoyed. Absolutely. Yes. So yeah. So, I mean, and I got, once I got the bar, we came up with a name. You know, who was thinking of names. I said, you know what? I'm going with Oopoopadoo. And I remember my ne- I told my nephew, James Andrews, I said, Andrews, I got a name for the bar. He said, oh, what, what you going to call it, the Judy? I said, no, Oopoopadoo. He said, well, until you about to knock the hat off him. Like, what an expression. James is hilarious. But anyway, yeah. James ha- is a good guy. He's, he's a not sweetheart. only hilarious, he's just yes. a good person. He's a yeah. sweetheart. He rolled with me from day one in that bar. He he Day played one. he played uh, with his band on a on a uh, pickup truck f- when I ran for city council against Jackie Clarkson. Of course, the West Bank overwhelms the East Bank uh, in that particular district every time. So I didn't really understand that clearly. Or else I, I might not have run. But anyway, he stuck with me till the end. Yes, he's that he's that guy. Yeah, he will stick with you. So yeah, so we had the bar for three years and. Ran into some difficulties with the owners and all, you know. Unfortunately, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, not the, not the club because you own the rights to the club. I assume the name. The name. Yeah. Yeah, the name, not the club. I was renting the club. The the building. Yes, yeah. the building. Right. So, um, with all that being said, we had it for three years. I enjoyed it. I did just what I wanted to do. First time I, I when I was little, I used to always want a cash register. So I would take the rice bag. <laughs> I would take the rice bag and get all the groceries out of my mom's cabinet, and the the, the rice bag would be my cash register. Okay. So I had at least eleven nieces and nephews in the house. So they were at the store. They had to shop for groceries, and I would stand behind a washing machine like it's the county and ring it up. <laughs> oh, children so, have such great imaginations. Yes, yes. So, so with that being said, I wind up getting my getting me a real cash register. You did. Oh, yes. My mama right. said, Judy, you always wanted a cash register. always register. wanted it. <laughs> yes. Well, and you know, yes. it's, 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 uh, being in business is a difficult thing. Yeah, it is. Especially in a city like New Orleans where, uh, we really don't have a fair shot at capital when yeah. it comes right down to it. It's, yes. it's, um, it's, it's one of those, uh, kind of, uh, I won't say quiet issues, but it's, it's a more subtle form of discrimination, frankly, that, um, uh, women suffer from African Americans suffer from even Latinos. I mean, it yeah. is it is not uh, uh, easy. So I know you had a, a rough road, but you know, again, I say that you established a legend. I did, yeah, and and that's yeah. never going to be forgotten. My husband sometimes talks about what's visible and invisible, and we just lost a friend recently 
um, who died in an accident, and and oh, um, sorry, I yeah, sent yeah. a note to uh, his 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 widow saying, um, you know, uh, your, our, our friend is is um, he may be gone, but he, he he's he's really just invisible. Yeah. He's not gone because right. it stays with you. The memory stays with you. Yes. The whole concept stays with you. Yeah. And that club is has a place in everybody's minds and hearts. Yes, it does. And that was my mission to make sure. And the bar, I mean, I was there for maybe eight months. The bar came number 15 best bars in, in New Orleans. Yes. A year and a half later, it was at number eight. No. First, number 15. A year and a half later, number eight. And just before I left, it was number, I want to say number three. Three best bars mm-hmm. in New Orleans. And I had people coming from all over the world to see what was going on there, which was good. I complete my mission. I thank God for it all, you know. And so now we have a film about it. Yes, we have a Tell film. Tell me about that. Well, the film is not so much about the bar, but it speaks. I talk about it in the in the film. You'll, you'll see me in the movie doing at the bar, doing certain things, and at the same time getting ready to pack my stuff. That's in the bar, kind of emotional. I still get emotional. It's like taking your your best baby doll away, you know, when you were young, right? Oh, yeah. So, um, and the film has, um, it speaks about what you just was talking about, how difficult it is for black people, black women, Latinos, even some white people that's not, that don't really have. Who, don't. I, I can tell you, I mean, I, 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 I'm white, but I came from a very poor background, and yeah. I, I, I'm always conscious of the advantages that people whose parents were wealthy have as compared with me. That doesn't mean that we can't rise above it sometimes. True. But you have to be, like, so brilliant and so lucky, really, to measure up to what can be accomplished by people who come in with, as um, the governor of, of Texas once said, a silver spoon in their mouth. Yeah. I'll never forget that quote. Yeah. That's that privilege. And Richards, is that her name? And, yeah. it's, and it's more difficult for my skin color, you know. We have oh, yeah. to be very Absolutely. extra to get anything in this world. Exactly. You know, yeah. it's very unfortunate and sad. But, I mean, uh, if you're not a basketball player, a rapper, or some lying lawyer, some criminal judge, then you won't eat. It is what it is. Being black people, but being being a black woman, you know, I know where we come from. I know where I come from. I know where my mom come from. I know what she suffered because she told us about it. She didn't. She didn't lay on it. She didn't like. Look, when you see white people don't do this, don't you treat everybody with respect, and you will get it back. But sometimes you don't because you have some people that don't like some people. Different races don't like different races. You kind of know what I mean. But, um, yeah, back to the movie, because I, 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 went, I went straight to church. <laughs> so, but you understand where I'm coming from, darling? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, the movie speaks about that, speaks about our struggles as black folks. It speaks about police. You know, I don't want to be a spoiler, but... It speaks about. I mean, if you read it, you'll kind of you'll be able to tell what, where we going, where we went with the movie. And the movie has one. I have one best international actress around the world. And Venice was my first trophy. Never traveled nowhere. Been <laughs> to ten different places. <laughs> 
<laughs> How did it go, go, get into the Venice? I mean, that that really that that's that's up there. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, I guess you can say like you just said. I was lucky. Well, it, it, but in it, so it, many it, words, it, I was blessed. I had it, a good. It was luck, but you had an important story. Yeah, I did. And then I had a very sweet producer, mm-hmm. the writer, the director. I put it like that. He mm-hmm. took interest in us. He came here to New Orleans to do it. Who was that? Roberto Menavini. Mm-hmm. He came here to New Orleans to do a movie about Lead Belly. Hmm. Yeah. But he wound up in a bar hanging he out with me. fell in love. Yes. He said, you know what, Judy Hill? I think I'm going to hang out with you. I'm going to do a story about you. Yes, yes. Now, uh, we have yes. another guest with us in, in yes. the studio, So, and I haven't called on her because I wasn't sure what she, whether she wanted to talk or not, but wh- tell me well, who she, you are and why you're here. Um, my name is Martha Algera. First of all, I'm one of Judy's dearest friends and yes. um, a huge supporter of New Orleans community, and I'm just here to support her, and I support all her endeavors. Thank you, honey. Thank you for thank you for being here. Yes. Thank you for doing that. Yes. And 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 so, um, what are people going to experience, and and what are they going to come away from uh, the film, thinking and feeling about it and about New Orleans? I can't speak about people's feelings or what they're going to feel, but I can say the places I've traveled to. Um, I've been to London. I've been to Argentina. I've been to um, yes, yes. I've passed through Rome, been through, I've been to, um, I can't think of all the places I got them written down. I want to wow. know, but. Um, You've been around the world. <laughs> my favorite was Argentina. I love Argentina. I love New York. I've been to New York. And I always went on these kind of festivals, you know, with the screening. And everybody, if there's 400 people in the theater, I kid you not, 300 is walking out crying. I got to meet and greet him at the door. Yeah. Wow. So I don't so know. So it's powerful. He it's captured very, very powerful. your story. He did. He did. He did. He didn't. It, it, we didn't act. It wasn't no acting show. Nobody was acting. He just kept the cameras it rolling. Real. It was yes, all real. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what. And we're power. not talking Real Housewives of uh, no, no, no. Beverly Hills or something. We're talking <laughs> one real day. Scripted. One day I may life. be talking. I like. I, I love TV now, but. This is all real, and, um, yeah, it's very, very powerful, and I don't know. I'm, it's crazy. I always wanted it to come to New Orleans, but now I'm shy. I'm like, oh, Lord, it's coming home. Like, I don't really want to see it. You know, I got all kind of different emotions. And, and, and at the, at, I mean, hopefully everybody gets what we're doing and what we did and where we was going with it and where we went with it. Because now it's it's going to be screened at Lupin Hall at NOCA mm-hmm. by the river. Yes. Um, with a reception at 7 on April 9th. April 9th Tuesday. is... Tuesday. 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 Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then followed by the film screening. And then after the film, 8.50, a conversation with you and Big Chief Kevin Goodman, Flaming yes. Arrows. Now, yes. tell me about that. Well, Big Chief plays a scene in there. At, well, you know, he's a Mardi Gras Indian. He's the Big Chief. He plays a scene in a movie, a very powerful scene, also about his neighborhood, you know, trying to, you know how we be. Which is his neighborhood? He's seven ward. Seven. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We got a scene with Big Chief Kilk. It's another Big Chief. Um, we call him Kilk. Click. Some call him Click. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, Chief Kenny Young. And we um, we have a we have a scene of a few kids. But my favorite is when this little Indian boy, he maybe about twelve, he's starting the movie off. The movie is real powerful, and I kid, I, I tell you the truth. Every time I see the movie, I need a napkin, and I've seen it at least ten times. And you see, so far, partially what you're crying about is not just the difficulties of living in the world as it is today, and and the conflicts between people, and it's it's not just black and white. It's it's everybody. It's like Republican and Democrat and North and South and. Baton Rouge, New Orleans. I mean, it's just we're, we're just dealing with too much conflict and not enough cooperation. Yeah, but I think the other I, thing that was, um, is, is I'm sure you're emotional about is the the power mm-hmm. of the cultural legacy you took in the our city out of my mouth. Yes. that is is like I, I don't think any place else in America. And I'm from New York, and, and New York is a powerful place, but in terms of of, of something that is out of the homes, the the blocks. The neighborhoods, the streets, we have something here, the culture here that has survived 300 years of, my husband says, poverty and slavery and God knows what. But still, it's so powerful. It keeps going. Yeah. And I think I mainly cry about, you know, I I think my tears be of how strong my black people is and how much we've lost and how much damage we've suffered, you know, mentally and physically. Because, you know, when the mind is beat up, the body breaks down. And it kind of brings me, and that's where my tears come from, you know, for the most part. It don't be so much of celebrating of the movie. I appreciate that. I, I love Mr. Um, Roberto Menavini, Diego, um, Paolo, Denise. I love those people. Those people wrote, Those people were there with us. They stood there. They listened at every story. It was scenes they were on where they were almost in danger just around certain neighborhoods. But they didn't budge. They stood there. They heard us. They got our story. They took it. We didn't know it was going to go to a film festival. We didn't even know it was going to hit nothing. I told the producer, I said, listen, when you get a CD of it, send it to me so we can watch it in the house. (laughs) Me and my mom and them. Yes. Yeah, yeah, but that—that's where my tears come from, you know. And I'm an emotional chick anyway, so you know. And with that being said, and seeing my people in them, and and the Black Panthers plays a huge part in there. What oh, have okay. you jumping out your that. seat? Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They—they they had uh, an important part in the history of the city too. Oh yes. Um, because it's sometimes it takes that kind of activism, which, quite frankly, I feel we're missing right now. Yeah. I, I don't think we have enough activism in the city of New Orleans at no, this we don't. moment in time. We don't. You know, we, we have don't. politics. We don't. We have nonprofits. We have people who are working uh, to make things better. But the kind of activism that we had that spurred the civil rights movement, that achieved that big change, uh, the kind of activism that um, – sought to protect the history of our neighborhoods that yes. you know those mm-hmm. those preservation people and not everybody agrees with them but they got out there on the streets and they fought for this the 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 structure the infrastructure of the city the homes of the city I, I don't feel like we have enough of that right now do you no we don't have it because you have people that's everybody wants money now 
back in those days, nobody wouldn't worry about money. They worry about each other. It was it was real loyal love there, loyal love. Today, everybody want to stick their hand in a cookie jar and take this. Everybody wants something, and it's so sad that it's all all about a dollar. It's very very sad. That's being that's being intensified, isn't it, by social media and television and media. You you see uh, what some people are 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 getting, and you want to get to. And that's eroding the natural culture yeah. that we that we really, you know. I think we're going to come back to that, though. I still and a, a movie like you have is going to contribute to that. This is the conversation we've just had with Judy Hill. Um, is about a film called The World's on what? Fire. What, what you going to do when the world's on fire? Yes. And it's it's going to be screened at NOCA. On uh, April 9th, Tuesday, uh, film screening at 7.30, conversation at 8.50 uh, with Judy Hill and Big Chief Kevin Goodman, Flaming Arrows. I'm going to be there. You've got to be there, I'm and gonna I'm going to be looking for you. I'm an emotional person, too, as yes. people who know <laughs> me know. Um, thank you so much, Judy, for thank coming Thank you, darling. In. Thank you so Anybody much for having me. Coming along with you. And um, yeah. this is Jean Nathan. This is Crosstown Conversations. And um, be back next week, Wednesday, 6 o'clock. Thank you, darling. Mm-hmm.